Hi, I'm Louise Mowbray, founder of Mowbray by Design and your host. Welcome to Lift, my conscious leadership podcast, Lead into the Future, today. I'm on a mission to bring you powerful insights and very human stories from leaders and entrepreneurs who are each, in their own way, contributing something noteworthy to shaping our world of work. Conscious conversations with people who are being conscious leaders and doing conscious business. My aim is to give you a personal lift to inspire you in your day-to-day business life. Make sure you subscribe now to never miss an episode. Today, I'm talking to Stan Stelnicker, founding director of Hub Culture, the conscious social network with over 50,000 global members. Hub Culture began in 2002 as one of the first online social networks and has always been at the forefront of change and new ideas. I first met Stan in London in 2005 and joined Hub Culture shortly afterwards. Since its inception, Hub Culture has produced over 50 pop-up locations in cities around the world with over 70,000 hosted guests, introduced virtual reality environments, interviewed thousands of cultural and business leaders, and launched integrated financial services around Venn. As part of Hub Culture's ecosystem, Stan advises portfolio companies with activities in blockchain, space, legal frameworks and digital content, and consults with governments and industry regulators on emerging technology, best practices and frameworks to lay the foundations for Hub Culture's eventual emergence as the first virtual state. I wanted to talk to Stan about what Hub Culture is up to today, his recent visit to the Amazon, and how Hub Culture is serving their digital citizens from a conscious leadership perspective. Stan, welcome to Lyft. It's amazing to have you here with me today. Thank you. It's great to be be here. Um, kind of a distance between us, but technology makes it feel like we're right face to face. Absolutely. And I, I think just, you know, we're smack bang in the middle of the coronavirus. Well, the novel coronavirus, which... Um, which I think, without a doubt, is going to have quite an influence on the rapid movement over to digital if it hasn't happened already for a lot of people. But um, let's not talk about the coronavirus today. Stan, give me a bit of background. You're the head of, you founded Health Culture, and um, you're the CEO of Health Culture. Tell me a little bit more about what Health Culture is up to today. Thank you. Well, yes, uh, I am the founder and um, founding director of Hub Culture. Hub Culture is a community, a digital community that exists both online and in the real world. It's today the longest running online social network, but it's really a a social network focused on business um, and conscious leadership. So uh, we are actively creating space for our members to be able to hopefully um, move toward self-actualization. And in the context of that, we're building up the frameworks for the first, uh, what we call virtual state or the first virtual country. And that's been a many year process for us, uh, working on a a lot of different things to be able to put the tools in place to help our members um, be able to achieve that, that goal. So goodness, Stan, straight into um, independent state. And I'm sure that um, has a lot of people wondering, what on earth does that look like? What is it, you know, how does one operate in in an independent state? Well, so our view would be that in the future, um, the world will um, see more 
I guess, say specialization or granularization. And that means that there's space emerging between the citizen and the state. And a virtual state, what we're essentially building, uh, is designed to provide services for our community in that kind of world. So we don't see it fully as an, um, say, independent nation state, but we see it as a new kind of institution, a new kind of entity, you know, really based in a way on tribalism, which is a very old idea. Right. Um, you know, the nation state construct is actually only 200, maybe 250 years old. Before that, the world existed really in tribes. And we see digital tribes, virtual tribes, as being something that are persistent um, throughout history. And if you are really active in providing services and uh, capabilities for a community, our tribe, um, that does tend to take on the form of a virtual state. So, you know, in simple terms, what does that mean? It means that um, we're trying to provide the best uh, space for conscious transformation for our people. And it also means that we're trying to provide advantages and opportunities to our kind of quote-unquote society. So that began with um, digital currency. In 2007, we launched one of the first digital currencies, Venn. And then it moved into digital identity. So we're actively providing um, own-your-own data uh, forms of digital identity for our members. And those digital identities can be used across the web. Um, obviously, economic empowerment or wealth creation through opportunities and um, uh, you know, sort of business or work that comes through the community. And then more recently, um, governance. So we launched a program called Propel, which is focused on what we call liquid governance, which is real-time voting and exportable uh, governance that can be moved or created from one area within the community and exported to another area. There are other things that we're doing beyond that um, around tokenization and exchanges and artificial intelligence, but all of them serve the idea of creating a basic framework that is designed to serve our, our members. Stan, it's so interesting because I think you and I met um, in around about 2005 and I can remember joining Hubculture. No <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, I shouldn't really, should I? <laughs> and you founded, I think, Hubculture in around about, if I remember correctly, around about 2007. Well, so hub culture, the community, well, you know, it was like many things. I, I worked in media at Time Warner. So hub began in 2002 and then we started doing events and parties and uh, fundraisers and stuff over the ensuing years. And then in 2007, I finally left my day job to focus on it full time. So it has several inception points. The company, um, and now there are many companies, uh, half, half a dozen companies that that run the, the aspects of the community. That all began in 2006, 2007. Um, but the community started in 2002. Yeah, and um, th thanks for filling me in. And I definitely aged both of us there, but <laughs> I have to say... One of the well, we were very young when we met. <laughs> we were so young. Was <laughs> we were ridiculous. just babies. <laughs> exactly. And Stan, one of the things I remember after joining Hub Culture is... Um, using them to exchange services with somebody else rather than mm -hmm. cash, hard, hard mm -hmm. cash. And um, for me, that's um, apart from the, the events and actually getting people together and the networking and the types of people who you were attracting at the time, that for me was um, really quite groundbreaking, you know, that one would actually exchange, almost an energy exchange at times, you know, although it may have been products or services or whatever it might have been. 
um, one thing for another, a, a barter tax system um, originally. And the power of that, um, you know, in the community, as far as I could tell at the time, and this is obviously things have evolved and changed and grown so much since then, was was absolutely huge. Tell me about that vibrant um, exchange today. Well, thank you. Um, you know, the, the reality is, is that digital currencies have become a major force. Um, you know, we began then in 2007, and then along came Bitcoin in 2009, and then over 10,000 other digital assets have um, come into being since then. So, um, you know, Venn has always had a lot of intentionality built into it because of the way that it was created. We launched the currency because we had these members from all over the world and we didn't have a way for them to easily exchange value. And the payment systems at that point were kind of difficult. If we were doing a project in Ho Chi Minh City or Beijing or Venice or London, you know, from one week to the next, it was really difficult to to have financial capability. And we also wanted to unleash financial capability for the members to be able to trade with each other with a globally relevant currency that in our case, we wanted to link to nature. And so we backed Venn with assets and some of those assets included nature. So it could become a kind of natural way to support the preservation of nature through, in this case, carbon that was embedded in the currency. So my view is that, um, you know, if you think of an economy or a, a civilization as a kind of body, as a, as a joint unit, the means of exchange are kind of like blood. Um, and it's like a circulation system. And so then became the circulation system for the community. And it's something that everyone in the community has access to. And it enables them to exchange um, intentionality as much as um, value. And that, I think, is really important. But there are some sort of basic you know, fundamentals around economics and the way that things work. Um, from an economic standpoint, that remain very true, regardless of whether you're using, um, you know, dollars or rand or, or ven, and those fundamental sort of things, I think, stay very much in place. But for us, a lot of what we were doing was thinking about. Um, we always said that hub was meant to be a place for conscious transformation, a place where someone could come and find a secure and, and safe place to be able to to transform their own consciousness. And for a long time, that was a very theoretical idea. But in many ways, the actual reality of that transformation began when we introduced a new kind of intentional money into the network. By changing the fundamentals of the money in the community, we were then able to begin to manifest different outcomes um, for the things that we did. And then, you know, since then, we've grown in a lot of ways and we've developed a lot of other pillars that are part of this idea of the virtual state. Um, and together, I think they're, they're all kind of rooted in this intentionality that comes from the money that is part of the community. I think it actually plays a really big impact in how societies or communities um, manifest. Yeah, absolutely. And Stan, tell me more about the collective consciousness, because obviously that's a a key area for me in terms of conscious leadership and conscious cultures and how we go about doing business, conscious business today. And you say that obviously the shift in, um, in how you addressed then and digital currencies in a, in a, in a digital community um, shifted the consciousness around that. Tell me a little bit more about how that works. Well, you know, I think that in, to some extent society 
in and of itself is moving through phases of consciousness. And part of this is driven by technology. So technology is, you know, from a very basic like level, changing the brain's ability to function. And so a, a really basic example of this is just the number of contacts that we have. You know, 200 years ago, an average person maintained maybe 25 to 50 like meaningful contacts because we were mostly agrarian and rural societies and you just didn't meet that many people. And then, you know, 50 years ago, that number had, had grown by a quantum leap to, you know, several thousand people um, who you would have meaningful relationships or connections to in a, in a period of your life. Today, especially for um, Western technologically you know, connected societies, that number has grown to the tens of thousands. And so we need technology to help us process those relationships and to maintain those relationships. And we actually end up creating new types of relationships that didn't exist before. I mean, you and I are a great example of this. We've known each other for 15 years, but we haven't spoken in several years. And we still kind of follow each other loosely through our social uh, web of connectivity. And this actually changes the brain waves, the, the frequencies of, of the, the brain in terms of how we're using um, our minds and the neural pathways and the neural connections that are being built and maintained in our brains. So for children today, there seems to be, but according to some studies, more um, prefrontal cortex activity because uh, children are processing a lot more information in much shorter bursts of time. But the back, the deep learning um, neurons that are, uh, go into the other parts of the brain are being exercised often less, and they're seeing less um, capability for children to, to develop the kinds of deep, deep thinking that exists there. So that's a kind of like rote example. But when you take social networks and the ability to kind of merge, in our case, physical and virtual um, capabilities into these spaces, and then you, you move intentionality into it, you can actually start to, I believe, physically affect um, the, the consciousness levels within a group. So one thing that has started happening within the physical locations that we do are very intentional um, exercises when, like, say, our teams open a location or um, you know, just in the, the natural course of activities that would happen in a hub. You know, in addition to running an online social network, we operate physical locations that our members are able to gather at and, you know, network or work or have a dinner or a party or an event. But it's, a lot of those things now include meditation or a sound bath or, um, you know, other things that are designed to help people um, ef effectively think about their mental state and actively work to enhance their mental state. Right. And I think that that combination is seeing real outcomes. Um, you know, whether we're doing it at our hub at Burning Man or it's the hub in Davos or, you know, our innovation campus in, somewhere in Europe, you know, all of these locations we're actively working now on like mental health and mental clarity as a component of this overall networking capability. So interesting that you bring up neuroscience, um, Stan, because I can remember probably about the time that we met or perhaps a few years later, listening to Don Tapscott, who was mm -hmm. one of our thinkers 50, I think the year before last now, um, with his book, um, Blockchain Revolution, which he wrote yeah. with his son. Yeah, it's a, it's but his very yeah, very. And his previous book, I forget the title of, um, was very much focused on 
the research that he'd done around young people and how their brains are wired differently and how they process information differently. So I think that, um, you know, on our day-to-day awareness level, so much, um, so many more people are much more aware of the effects of today's environments, our worlds, worlds of work, our social connections and how we actually interact with each other than ever before. Saying that, I don't think that um, our methodologies or our patterns for coping with the stress and, um, you know, added pressures of all of these, you know, being always on, being, you know, always on to emails and messaging and well, that's why i think you see such a movement towards people shutting off right it's like right you know it's becoming in a way more extreme where you know we're we're super on but then you also see this like massive like growth and wellness and the need for people to try to shut off or to try to connect to nature um you know i just spent a month in brazil and several weeks in the amazon doing exactly that you know frankly i was working on another project which i think we'll talk about later but you know several weeks in the amazon with indigenous tribes really disconnected in many ways from from that but also working intentionally on studying you know indigenous methods for effectively consciousness and then thinking about how those methods can be um, brought into the world that we live in and I think there are a number of people working on these ideas. And certainly as a community hub culture, I've seen it move so much in terms of the, the, the people that work with us and also the people who interact with us being way more focused and interested in that um, side of things, you know, to the point where it's really becoming ingrained in the business as well. And I've seen massive differences in the level of success that our teams have on projects based on how much attention we're paying to intentionality going into it. Like we always do now, like a meditation um, going into a project and we try to set intentionality with the group and to try to harmonize the frequency of the people on our team. And I see time and time again, that when that happens, the outcomes for the group are amazing. They, they work better together. They get along better together. And the people who miss that, end up in a weird way kind of like energetically disconnected from the work that's going on it's it's really something that's it's quite um powerful and even if people are sensitive to that energetic connection or not sensitive to that energetic connection i think they still benefit from it um whether whether they feel it themselves or not yeah i I absolutely love this because instead of us talking about collective consciousness as if it just exists um that intention of creating the collective consciousness to hold that space for that group to to serve that purpose does need work and i think a lot of people are perhaps um you know we talk a lot about you know the five people that we spend the most time with and how they really shape our world and our thinking and how we feel about things and how we approach things. Uh, the, the key here, of course, is, you know, as we spend time with those five people and we hopefully choose the people we spend time time with, so, so really is that um, need to, to choose the environments and the business um, projects and engagements that we're involved with intentionally uh, to get a better result um, for the future. Stan, I'm, I'm really curious because one of the things that I am finding in this world of work today 
is that there seems to be just as in many other things, geopolitics or you know anything we can um, think of right now, there seems to be a massive polarization. You know, perhaps old school, old thinking organizations, teams, cultures, and those organizations that really are shifting rapidly um, towards an emergent future. How do you see this? I mean, it, it's wonderful having this. Um, how many people are in your are uh, in Hub, Hub Culture today? There's around 50,000. 50,000, right. So it's a, lovely, um, it's a lovely resource to be able to look at and actually quantify, you know, what's actually going on around well, that sort of polarization. What, what is your experience of that? I mean, I think people are drawn to like-minded um, people generally. And so you see the ability for technology to provide an audience for almost everyone, depending on what their previous worldview is. And, you know, quite frankly, algorithms are designed to optimize efficiency and productivity, which increasingly um, route us, especially in the digital world, into um, kind of funnels. And those funnels themselves tend to be polarizing. And so I think really that the, the web today and, and the way that me, social media works um, is actually doing a lot to make us feel and um, think that we're more polarized than we actually are. And that actually sets off a feedback loop that enhances the polarization. Yeah. However, um, you know, I don't think that we're as really polarized as people think. And I think that on, um, you know, let's just say uh, the conscious side of the coin, people, I think, tend to, um, I think, get excited about it because they start to see really, um, you know, manifest changes happening. And there's a kind of dual reality. There's like normal reality and then there's like kind of conscious reality. And when you dip into conscious reality, especially when you hit a flow state, it's like there are no coincidences. Everything matters. Like it, it, it gives you reasons to be very diligent about how you, how you perform or how you act because you can see results from that. And so that's highly reinforcing and it pushes people down that path to kind of seek more. Um, but as you go down that path, I think it becomes really easy to kind of discount or, um, you know, to, to kind of think that this is the only way. Yeah. And then on the other side, you know, you have people who are um, either um, traditionalistic or perhaps what you would call scientific, um, who would sort of discount it and say like, hey, there's nothing to this you know, you really just need to pay attention to the math, right? And the facts and, the, you know, reality is reality. And, the, you know, on that side, oddly enough, both extremely traditional or what you might think of as religious views or very scientific views are not incompatible with like higher levels of consciousness, right? So scientifically working towards essentially a kind of evolutionary state by opening up more neural pathways in the brain is not... Um, incompatible with science. It's just that science doesn't really understand a method, a scientific method for doing that. And so we're still kind of fumbling around in the dark about ways to do it. Some people do mushrooms and, you know, that increases neural brain activity by like a factor of 5x. And then they, they come away with some, you know, insight from that. Other people are doing meditation. Other people are just, you know, being super conscious about how they interact with people or setting goals for their, for their next week or their next five years. Whatever the method is, the people are trying to do to enhance 
the conscious performing of their mind is, you know, the method that they're doing, but there isn't a scientific method to it. And then on the religious side, you know, you could argue that there are aspects of religiosity that are compatible with this level of mindfulness, but they're just stories that are essentially told in different ways. And again, the religious side isn't really linked to science. To science, so you have this like kind of dichotomy between the science and the traditional um, sort of spiritualism side, and then you have this kind of conscious like movement, which is a little bit focused on, say, curious exploration, but with some form of experimentation or a scientific method. And I think eventually all three start to converge as you you hit higher points of consciousness. But that doesn't mean that other people aren't interested or you know valuable in that in that journey. They're just perhaps going about it in very different ways. Yeah, and and you know I think today we're seeing a lot of work that's um, especially around quantum meets spirituality. You know where mm-hmm. the science kind of meets the the, the spiritual side of things. Yeah, and, it's all probabilities, right? And fundamentally, yeah. it's all math. But you know, quantum says that you have two opposing states that can exist simultaneously, but they don't exist 100% simultaneously. They exist in a probability ratio between each other. So the atom could be here or there, um, or there. And depending on observance, the likelihood of that atom materializing in the place that you're looking goes up. So we know that observance has a huge impact on materiality. And so that's at the quantum level. And then, you know, you can, I think, kind of scale that all the way up to the kind of mindfulness level, which says where you put your mind, where you, like who you hang out with, as you said a minute ago, has a huge impact on what actually manifests. And that's still a probabilistic outcome. But to me, that's like completely in line with both spirituality and science. And so what a great opportunity to kind of take both of those two things and then start to play with it and experiment with it and to try to actively um, shape outcomes from it. So, you know, that's what we're doing within Hub. And that's the kind of space that we're creating for our members to be able to do that in real life with us at our at our venues or to to kind of have tools to enable that kind of work online. Fantastic. Stan, tell me a little bit more about Davos, because I know that you had a pavilion there recently. Was that very much focused around Greta and climate change? And <laughs> what, what was the, well, the main thrust there? Yeah, so we've been in Davos for the last 14 years. We've had a hub there. And that now that look, the, what started as a very small room grew into a building. And then we built another building on top of it called the Ice House, which means innovation for the circular economy and is focused on sustainable solutions for the planet. And then this year we built the Tech Lodge, which is a new building focused on essentially the existential risk of technology related to like human uh the the human species and then we have a couple other uh little projects there and so it's now the campus at davos and the focus is entirely on building relationships with ceos and other business leaders and enabling them to build relationships with each other um we did host greta this year again we also hosted her last year and um we're able to give her a platform for for being able to talk to the press about um, the work that she's doing, and you know, quite frankly, her concerns about climate and the environment. But there are thousands of people who pass through the hub, you know, during Davos, and everybody has their own unique um, and often incredible story. Um, for us, you know, this year was really focused on technology. We did a series of audio discussions called the Chronicles, looking at existential tech, which I think 
along with climate, is a huge area that we need to be focused on in terms of making sure that we get um, tech right with its relationship to the evolution of the human species. Like there are several very real scenarios in which um, we don't come out looking very good in terms of the relationship to the evolution of technology, um, especially as we approach singularity, which we may or may not reach anytime soon, but it's really the period um, after connected tech and before singularity that's most dangerous for us. And so really being conscious about thinking how we're building technology and how it impacts humans is something that I've become very focused on over the last year or two. Yeah, and um, that's clanging so many loud bells for me. I'm working in New York with a, a genome advisory, and um, which is really all about ethics. It's all about the space. You know, it's, we know that science and technology either can or will be able to do pretty much anything. The well, question, Lucan Sapien. Yes. So it means last universal common ancestor. So you know the idea that we're less than a generation away from being able to augment our own DNA with the DNA from other species, or just to kind of augment together with machines. You know, my neural laces are less than ten years away, where we'll be able to plug our thoughts directly into the internet. But that also means the internet will be reading our thoughts, aggregating those thoughts across large groups of individuals and then coming out with conclusions from that. I mean, it's really very yeah. interesting. <laughs> and, yeah. And deeply concerning. I, I think for, you know, I was at a, I was at a singularity event, funnily enough, the other night. And um, what concerns me a lot, I, I work a lot also with futures and future models and helping people to actually think in multiple futures. And um one of the things that I, I'm finding time and time again is that, you know, there's a great celebration around what technology and science can do, you know, produce perhaps twins in a Petri dish in China and, and science goes, wow, you know, that's amazing. And yes, I guess, you know, for science and technology, it is amazing. But what about the human race? And I think that... Um, well, two sides, right? We need it. I mean, the, yes. not to bring it back to coronavirus, but, you know, the reality is, is that the ability for us to sequence the genome and be working actively on about 20 vaccines already within a period of three months is amazing. Like, yeah. We need science to be able to save us from ourselves. Um, but let's be honest, like the virus is a result of really bad treatment of animals um, over long periods of time. Yeah. So, you know. Brings it back to reality, right? Um, Stan, tell me more about the Amazon. Well, so that was great. So we, um, I just spent several weeks with the Ashaninka tribe in the Amazon. Um, they are an incredible tribe. Uh, you know, there are many, obviously many tribes in the Amazon who have very long cultural histories, but the Ashaninka in particular are older than the Inca. Their, their tradition is unbroken and goes back over a thousand years. They're one of the only tribes not to be decimated by the Portuguese or the Spanish um, during colonial times because they were so deep in the, in the Amazon. And they have incredible indigenous knowledge, um, like many tribes. I mean, there are many tribes in the Amazon and, quite frankly, around the world who have incredible knowledge. And, you know, for me, coming out of this experience, um, I was really 
to be honest, I was very shocked by um, the amount of disregard that we have paid towards indigenous communities and the lack of respect that we have for indigenous communities because they are incredibly knowledgeable about things, especially related to consciousness, that we totally undervalue. Um, so being able to learn, I mean, I was there to learn about governance and, you know, how do you effectively govern a society, however small, you know, the Ashaninka, they have less members than Hub does, but they've managed to successfully govern that community for over a thousand years. So I was really there to look at how do you create long-term intergenerational governance that can really last. And the way that they do things, you know, it's very interesting. They have only really oral histories. Um, but what's amazing is that they're also extremely connected to nature. And the idea of being connected to nature in the way that they are, and then applying it towards um, the technologies that we have today is what I'm most interested in. And so I'm, you know, really happy about the outcomes from that. Because of the work that we're doing with them, we've, we're essentially partnering with the Ashaninka and an institute called Yurenki um, Tassarensi, which is an institute that the uh, Ashaninka have created to, to move some of their knowledge out into the world. And um, we're partnering with them, and the, the plan is to work on Amazonian reforestation. So the tribe has actively replanted over 2 million trees um, on hundreds and hundreds of hectares of land that were decimated by castle ran cattle ranching. So, you know, as we all know, Amazonian deforestation is a very big problem. And um, the reason is all often because of cattle ranching. And the, the ranches are used for a few years and then the soil gets decimated because of burning. They don't use regenerative agriculture and then they have to cut down more. So um, the, the tribes have been buying the decimated Capital, cattle ranching and then replanting the forest and they showed us we, we were staying in areas of forests that have been rehabilitated over the last 20 years so um, off of the back of that we are combining some of our technology with this idea of amazon reforestation and we've launched hubculture.city which is a, a new virtual reality city that we're building that will be available for so to speak our citizens um, and then tied to that are uh, efforts around reforestation and buying land and, and reforesting the, the forest. And what's cool about it is that not only are we looking to reforest the actual land that, you know, to kind of rehabilitate these small parts of the Amazon, but also then to embed technology to create a kind of futuristic city. So we, we call it Hub Culture Emerald City. And um, the idea is that you have a virtual city on one side and then Eventually, in four phases, uh, a real city will emerge in the Amazon that's fully in harmony with nature. So circular economy, um, renewable energy, 100% uh, like recycling of, of waste, um, and looking at new advanced technologies that can change the way that people live in nature. So, you know, it's a long project for us, and we'll see how far we get, but I think that it's one of our next um, horizons for the community. Well, Stan, gosh, <laughs> I always need to take a deep breath with that. When, it, when are you looking at <laughs> That's absolutely awesome. I'm, I'm really intrigued and curious um, to learn more. <laughs> yeah, I beg you your pardon? At hubculture.city. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. What I'll, what I'll do is post um, all relevant links and what have you in the show notes so that people can 
dip in and have a look and see what you're up to. Yeah. Stan, in terms of the actual physical city, what is your timeline around that? Well, I mean, it's really a three to five year project. Um, the first step right now is we're building hubculture.city, which is a virtual city. And it's particularly relevant given the fact that travel and quite frankly, our physical pavilions are all threatened um, for 2020 because of the, the uh, limitations around travel and events. And that's a big part of what we do. So we're building a virtual environment to be able to host people in new ways related to some of these moments and these events. And then with um, that project, we're looking to essentially be investing in these things. So, you know, it's a four-phase project, and phase one for 2020 is building as much as we can of the virtual city. Um, nice. The first neighborhood in Emerald City will open in April, so not very far away. And then, you know, quite frankly, we'll be putting you know, funds immediately towards the restoration side of the the reforestation. And then, you know, we'll we'll see how it goes. I think the first thing that we want to do physically on the ground is a kind of wellness facility, especially around mental health, because there's a lot of evidence that certain um, plant medicines and other techniques from the deep Amazon that the tribes have could be helpful to people with mental health or depression or other issues. And so I'd love us to see a kind of space emerge with the tribe that is focused on um, providing, you know, some scope of, of mental wellness for, for people who want to visit that. And then we'll see what else emerges out of it. But certainly um, the use of advanced technology is a core part of what we're going to be doing. So interesting, Stana. I know that the World Health Organization um, finally recognized burnout as a thing last year officially. Mm. And I'd say that during the course of the last six months, um, six to 12 months, I've been approached by and have been chatting to a, a bunch of people who are looking at putting together centers for the rehabilitation of people who have been through burnout, which is quite a thing. And, um, you know, we're either looking at ways of preventing burnout um, but of course, once we cross a line and we, we actually land up in that sort of stage, it's, it's a tricky journey to come back from. And I've worked with, you know, you probably know, but I, um, I used to work in executive search um, globally and um, have seen thousands of people over the years, both in the, you know, in, under Mowbray by Design's umbrella, but also in executive search, who've actually crossed that line into a clinical burnout. And um, it takes a long time to recover. And if there are better ways of approaching this, perhaps rather than the traditional um, prescribed route, then um, we, you know, we should be embracing that. Well, I think nature is really important for addressing burnout. Like we're not connected to nature, especially in urban environments. Yeah. And just getting connected to nature, I think does a huge amount for like energetic restoration. I mean, I being in the jungle for those weeks and, um, you know, it was the most restorative thing I've done in years. And I, I do think that nature has a really important, um, you know, we're, we are part of nature, but we tend to ignore that. And our inability to connect with nature, I think is really symptomatic of a lot of the sickness in the world today. Um, so nature yeah. has to be preserved. Absolutely. And Stan, last but not least, you just launched a fund. 
We did. Um, in March, uh, we launched uh, a digital asset fund, which is connected to VAN, our digital currency. So it's essentially a hedge fund that's investing into, um, it actually has a very unique investment thesis. So it's investing into digital assets, which you would think of as, you know, the many types of new emerging technologies that are coming to fore, but it has a very unique filter. Um, it has a, an SDG ESG filter. So anything that we invest in with the fund has to be done with an SDG, Sustainable Development Goals, or uh, ESG, Environmental and Social Governance Lens. And that actually reduces the number of things that we can invest in with the fund, but it also provides a very unique metric by which we measure success. Obviously, you want to measure financial return and, and um, the, the performance of the fund from, a, from an economic standpoint, but it goes further. We also have to measure the success of the fund on its commitment to these uh, initiatives. So what we're looking for are initiatives that fit the goals of the Sustainable Development Goals, which there are 17, um, and are connected to environmental and social governance. So it's not just a traditional finance fund. So for instance, we wouldn't be able to invest in um, carbon polluting technologies like oil and gas. We'd instead be looking at perhaps, you know, things like solar. So, um, you know, there are a lot of like metrics and um, variables to how we look at things with the fund, but uh, we're actively looking to have, you know, extremely good performance, hopefully, with um, this kind of social uh, purpose as well. Fantastic. Stan, thank you so much for your time. I've got a thousand other questions, but perhaps we'll pick up in, in, in episode two another time. <laughs> well, maybe we should have you on to one of our chronicles soon. We can well, absolutely. That would be amazing. I'd absolutely love that. And I'm going to keep a keen eye on Emerald City. I think it's something that personally it appeals hugely. And um, I will, as I mentioned before, post all relevant links and make sure that people have a way of getting hold of you. Um, Great, across across the different platforms. Stan, lovely to connect with you again. And um, yeah, we'll be in touch. Okay, we'll see you at a hub soon. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Lyft. I'm delighted you're here. If you'd like to connect with Stan, head over to my website, mowbraybydesign.com, where you'll find the show notes and relevant links. Whilst you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the show in iTunes or any of your favorite platforms to never miss an episode. And if you're loving Lyft, I'd really appreciate a rating in iTunes or simply share with a friend who needs a Lyft. You can get in touch with me for coaching or speaking engagements by sending an email to louise at mowbraybydesign.com or click on the contact button on my site. Until next time, lift yourself, lift another. Lift another.